Jazz is a big part of our Views and Brews series recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. You can listen to world-class jazz musicians illustrate masterclasses on jazz greats like John Coltrane, Charles Mingus, Miles Davis, and so many more. Subscribe to the Views and Brews podcast today. It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate Two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy The class struggle in the U.S. is agrarian in origin. We can produce all the great food in the world, but if we're not working to transform the very nature of the relations of power in the food system, having good food will be null and void. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I'm Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. And I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Today's secret ingredient is the peasantry. The reason we're talking about the peasantry is because April 17th is the International Day of Peasant Struggle. Uh, And in fact, uh, this year on April 17th will be the 20th anniversary of uh, the El Dorado dos Carajas massacre in Brazil. Um, where 19 peasants, uh, women and men uh, from the landless uh, rural workers movement were assassinated while they were uh, protesting. Um, And the person who's going to tell us about this is Blaine Snipstall. Uh, He's a farmer in Maryland and a member of the Southeastern African American Farmers Organic Network, part of the international peasant movement La Via Campesina. And Blaine is very proudly a peasant. So Blaine Let's let's just start with that. Why peasant? Uh, first, I just want to say thank you for for having me on the secret ingredient here. Uh, why peasant? Well, you know, it's actually funny uh, when you first come across the word peasant in English. Uh, you know, the first connotations that typically come to mind is something that we've left. It was something that was downtrodden and destroyed. You know, in the transition um, from the feudal system in in Europe on over into uh, the farmer uh, in in the U.S. and and for me, you know, I I borrow the language of peasant or the peasantry from my understanding uh, and learnings from my experience within La Via Campesina uh, for campesino, which is its translation peasant translation into into uh, Spanish, and campesino uh, actually when you take that word apart, one in campo, which means country. Uh, the rural area, um, and you add the conjugation, sino, it actually means a person from the country or a person of the land. And so for me, moving into English, that's my starting point for peasant and for peasantry, a person who is from and works with the land. And so it, it depicts a certain relationship with the land uh, and really with the cosmos and other people. And then secondarily, peasant or peasantry also is very political, obviously politicized by La Via Campesina um, <clears throat> and others, but in direct contradiction to the industrial model of agriculture and this identity of what is a farmer, right? And so it's important to situate peasants and even akin to farmer or small farmers within the same banner of relating to the land in a way that's more harmonious, uh, relating to people that's more egalitarian or equitable, Um, based upon justice, and that's in direct contradiction to the model of industrial agriculture and its identity of a farmer 
who is this person who typically will drive a tractor, uh, Latifundo, owns thousands of acres or manages thousands of acres, is a byproduct of the historical legacy of the plantation model of agriculture that was developed in the southeastern part of the United States. And so for me, that's, that's the, uh, in a nutshell, of why a peasant. So, Blaine, why don't we, st- I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in that answer that we can chew on, but why don't we step back for a second and talk us through what Via Campesina is and how you got involved with it. Right. So La Via Campesina uh, officially formed uh, in 93, 94. Um, but its roots really go back, um, as was depicted to me, in the 80s. Because uh, basically what was happening um, post-World War II, the, the implementation of the Green Revolution around the world, the restructuring of many uh, global uh, national economies, which at that time many national economies around the world were still very agrarian-based. So what that restructuring meant, meant the transformation, the rapid transformation of the agrarian sector of many of these countries. And so, you know, all this was happening on the international level. And within the peasant organizations around the world, particularly Latin America, Europe, um, Southeast Asia, and Africa, um, they began to organize exchanges. Farmers from Canada down to Brazil, um, farmers from South Africa into Central America, Europe, into India, and vice versa. Um, and these were happening in the 80s, completely under the cover. And they begin to understand the, the true nature of this international system of basically restructuring the internal economies of each country to allow the free flow of capital. And what that meant in agriculture was the displacement of peasants, of rural peoples, of indigenous peoples who've been on the land for centuries, for millennia, um, displacing them, transforming the land, and then either A, they become labor on land in which they once uh, either A, owned or had historically worked, or they were forced into the migration and labor systems surrounding the development of cities, whether it's in their own country or neighboring countries. And so that was the moment that, that kicked off La Via Campesina as when they arrived, uh, I believe it was in uh, Homs, Belgium, in uh, 93, 94. And so La Via Campesina today is, uh, international, is the international peasant movement of roughly 200, 250 some odd million peoples, indigenous, small to medium scale farmers, pastoralists, forest people, and fisher folk uh, from around the world in roughly 72 different countries, 170 organizations. And it is by far the largest social movement uh, that we currently have to date. It just eclipsed over 20 years. Um, I became involved in 2010 when I attended my first event uh, with La Via Campesina in Cancun, Mexico, uh, for the, um, I believe that was the COP, I can't remember the number at this point, Um, but one of the Conference of the Party's climate talks at that time. And I was representing at that time the Rural Coalition, which the Rural Coalition is a U.S.-based well, members in Mexico as well, um, farmer organization, an alliance of farmer organizations, of farm workers, of indigenous peoples, of black farmers, um, small to medium scale and even large scale farmers throughout the, particularly the south of the U.S. and in the southeast and southwest um, more specifically. And so I was representing them as their youth representative uh, to La Villa Campesina. And between 2010 and 2000, really towards the end of 2015, 
I became involved within La Vieja Campesina in a variety of ways. Uh, I was part of the International Youth Collective or the Youth Commission of La Vieja Campesina, which was um, the coordinating body at the international level that helped facilitate um, different youth events and processes within the regions. Um, it's important to note here that La Vieja Campesina um, does not legally exist, right? You're not going <laughs> to find this on somebody's IRS books in any country. Um, and it's very important to take that into context because, uh, which is something we might dive into later, uh, because I think oftentimes when we, when we think about movement, sometimes we think about it within the nonprofit framework and what La Via Campesina poses is movement as a social organization, an entity that can be highly responsive and, uh, reflective of the base of the, the actual conditions of those who are running the joint, you know, as we say here. And so they internally organize themselves within nine regions, which span the globe. And each region has a series of three, five, six, ten different countries within it. And each region has two uh, coordinators, one male, one female. Uh, and then they will also have several youth coordinators to each region. And so I served in that capacity for several years and also was part of the first agroecology uh, encounter in the U.S., that was hosted by the Farm Workers Association of Florida and the Rural Coalition as well. And this was back in February in 2015. And we had folks from uh, Nicaragua, Mexico, Brazil, um, Puerto Rico, uh, Canada, um, all over the U.S. come down and um, engage in a moment of political study and technical development. And that was back in 2015. So, you know, and I've since transitioned from my role as a youth coordinator. It's important to keep that space open and, you know, new energy coming into it. Um, but I still support and I'm involved, you know, in regards to the agroecology work in the South with the Farm Workers Association of Florida, um, which is a member, and then also with the Mississippi Association of Cooperatives. Um, and then on the back end uh, with SAFON, SAFON is important to clarify here uh, in your intro, uh, Raj, SAFON is not formally a member of La Via Campesina. It's a member of the Federation of Southern Co-ops, which the Federation of Southern Co-ops is a member of the Rural Coalition, who is the actual member of the La Via Campesina. <laughs> <laughs> and so Raj, Raj will know very well why I had to explain that, because it's uh, if anyone from VIA were to be listening or whomever, it's just important to have all those lines clear. Can I just ask very quickly, I mean, Blaine, the, the other thing that's associated with peasant and, the, and the, the sort of history of all of this is the idea that someone's born into it. But you weren't, were you? No. Um, so how, how did you, how did, uh, I mean, perhaps you can just explain to us how it is that you end up being a peasant even if you're not born one. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would actually describe peasant as, uh, as not so much as a static uh, identity, but something that's coming into being. I'm, I'm coming into become a peasant. It's a, it's a goal and aspiration of mine. Um, and, you know, for me, I did not come directly from a farming background. In fact, um, according to our oral history, I'm the first one to farm since we left the South. My family originally comes from uh, outside of Macon, Georgia, um, in a small town called Damascus. And, you know, so, you know, I'm the first one to go back to the land in a way that... Uh, is contrary to our, our history, in a sense, as relates to my own family. And so, you know, I think it's an interesting moment because on one hand, we have to ask ourselves, who is going to feed the future? 
and how and on what terms? And that's a, a two-folded question because on one hand you could say, well, we can have business as usual and what is usual is actually only usual for a very small time span in terms of the development of industrial agriculture or the, or the agribusiness model as we've come to call it today. And really in the last 60, 70 years, but one could trace it again, like I mentioned, to development of the plantation model of agriculture in the South circa the 1600s, 1700s and so forth. So on one end you have that in terms of answering who's going to feed the future. Then on the other hand, you have the peasantry, which is a historically verified force that's been developing for centuries for millennia right we understand that agriculture as we conceive of it today um, in some cases is upwards of eight ten thousand years old and i'm not saying those folks at that time referred to themselves as peasants um it was quite different but what i'm saying is that the peasantry um as it relates to my personal understanding and what I've gleaned from my experience within La Via Campesina is directly tied to this historical legacy. And so for a person who did not come from a farm background and in fact had no even concept of farming, you know, more than 10, 12 years ago, um, it's, it's certainly a journey. And so why I situate peasantry or a peasant or farming in, in this particular way is because when we look at the development of society and particularly people of color and how we have been so instrumental in, in building a country that was never designed, designed to build us up. And so reclaiming these, this identity, reclaiming a way that relates to the land that's not excluding our history of relating to slavery, but also acknowledging that through healing, we can move into a different direction, um, particularly for our experience here and for my personal experience. And so, you know, that's my, 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 my roundabout way of why, of why peasantry, um, of why farming or why this identity of a farmer in this way that I describe it. You know, Blaine, it, it's really fascinating to me. You said you're the first one in your family to kind of go back to the land. What types of conversations were you having with your, with your family about your decision to become a peasant and to pursue this path, and what types of um, what types of things did you encounter in your conversations with your family about this and your friends? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I'll never forget this day. I was uh, driving home. This was uh, in 2010. I was just got done working on a friend's farm for the day, and my aunt, uh, great aunt. I was raised by my grandmother, and so this is her sister. And uh, she gives me a call and just checking in. And we're talking, and I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, well, what are you up to these days? And I was like, oh, I'm farming, you know, just working on some, some farms. And she goes, farming? And I go, yeah. And she goes, wow, that's just so unusual. You know that's why we left the South. And literally, I'll ne <laughs> like that moment was just emblazed in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> completely emblazoned in my mind. Um, the first couple years, you know, took some talking to, I don't think it became real to my family until I showed up home, which is back down south in Georgia, uh, with vegetables one day. And I think that kind of was the moment that it clicked for them. Um, before it was just their son, their brother, um, that sounded kind of crazy and always smelled 
or always had like dirt <laughs> under their fingernail, you know. But when they saw the produce, I think that that kind of made sense for them. But, you know, uh, you're moving to the side of that in terms of friends and people in the community. Again, the American imagination, which always suffers from amnesia, consistent amnesia, all of a sudden has gotten hip to food. And, and like, oh, wow, food is like this thing that maybe we should be thinking about in some uh, more profound way. Um, and within people in our generation, and by our generation, you know, I'm 27, um, so I'd say in the 20s and the 30s, um, there actually is a lot of uh, regeneration around uh, agrarianism, uh, around farming, uh, around food, and in particular around how those pieces, when muddled together, can uh, get at the issue of power. And so for me, uh, I've, I've always been very uh, cognizant of the central issue, which is about power, you know, about land and labor and power and how are we actually um, transforming the fundamental nature of reality, uh, and in particular, the food system. And so, you know, the responses from, from my personal friends and other folks that I've just uh, had the chance to dialogue with or be in trainings with has been really positive, um, very positive. I think, you know, there's a couple of things here, right? There's, there's the, the first arrival, you're like, aha, food's important. And then once you get past the food is important, you go, okay, what can I do? And then that branches out. One group says, well, I'm going to farm or I'm interested in farming. And that group, when I interact with them, they're interested day one, day two, they're a little tired and they, they take a step back. <laughs> um, and that's just, that's, that's part of the journey. Um, I think when we think about how we're developing more farmers, but again, <clears throat> it's not just a matter of developing more farmers because we could have all the farmers in the world. You know, I, th I think having a numbers game is one thing, but if it's an unorganized numbers game, it doesn't mean anything. And so for us, uh, it's, it's about growing the numbers game, it's, but it's also more fundamentally about organization, right? As a farmer and as our farm, Black Dirt Farm, we're about production. We're about feeding people in harmony with nature, Proving and showing that our model, our, our, our very small-scale model of agriculture is viable, um, financially viable, uh, ecologically viable, um, and also shows, shows a different form of, of uh, social dynamic, basically a different, way, different form of culture, right? Because agriculture now is devoid of, in many regards, it's actually devoid of culture, devoid of people, right? And so for us, we really, we really focus on developing that cultural piece on the farm in relation to our production and, you know, on those other things. And so, you know, the, the thing I actually often say to friends is like, well, if you're really a real friend with me, you got to come get it in on the farm, you know? And so people will come out and they work with us. Um, and that's on a very, on a very basic small, on a very small and basic level as it relates to the farm, you know, for our, for my personal experience. Um, but again, speaking more broadly and, and on a larger level, uh, we move more uh, strategically in terms of how do we answer this question around power? And through organization, we find that's how we're going to answer that question around power. So Blaine, I want to um, get you to go back. I mean, I really love the insight that you had about how 
the industrial ag model is based on this plantation model that was innovated in the American Southeast and also in the West Indies uh, with slave labor. And, and talk us through the sort of history of agriculture as experienced by black Americans, um, first in slavery and then post-slavery, which I've heard you say the sort of destruction of, of deconstruction um, and how all of that played out uh, to the point now where we have very, very few black farmers in the land. If you could just like take us through that that story, because I think it's just, that is a story that lies deep in the recesses of American historical amnesia. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think you know if we say the American imagination suffers from amnesia, that sometimes that's a little bit more palatable than saying that actually, folks, your entire educational experience has been to confuse you and lie to you for one purpose, and that purpose is to work and spend your money. Um, so that's why I choose to say Amer- the American imagination is suffering from amnesia. <laughs> but um, the thing is, is like the class struggle in the U.S., most, much like many, many other places, is agrarian in origin. And what that means in, in the context of the U.S. is that the roots of our agrarian system is twofold. One, it's the dispossession, displacement colonization of indigenous people's lands, their crops and their culture, which was by far the the first basis to our food system. And then secondly, labor, where there was the indentured servitude of of Irish people, uh, then into the enslavement of African peoples, and then the transformation into the bracero, sharecropping, tenant farming, farm worker context, H2A, you know, all these things are built upon its predecessor. And, you know, actually, one, in one of our trainings, uh, you know, we, we point out just this simple idea, which is the idea that they purport this country to be the richest or in one of the wealthiest countries, you know, at least in Western history, right? Um, in world history, one could argue otherwise. I think any country in the world would be as rich and as wealthy as the United States if it too had 400 plus years of free labor and if it too had gangstered or basically stolen one of the most biologically diverse landscapes in the Western Hemisphere. I think any other country on Earth would have the same riches, right? No doubt. And so, but we ask, but what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean? And so it's important to to point out that between the 1600s, really the middle part of the 1600s, onward up to, into the late 1800s, truthfully speaking, um, the U.S. economy, or the pre-U.S. economy before it was you know, independence or what have you, um, was rooted in the southern plantation economy. And so what that meant in terms of, if we you know chart a very small arc in, in the history for this conversation here, was that the the African people that were brought here were brought, they were specifically chosen for their specific forms of agrarian knowledge. So these weren't beings who were not agents of their own knowledge, basically. And that was very well understood, right? This wasn't the, the people who were brought here wasn't by happen chance, it wasn't by accident. These folks, uh, the English, the Spaniards, the Portuguese were very, very well understood what they were, what they were attempting to do. And so 
in the South in particular, there is this very strong knowledge base that was brought. And that also brought seeds like collard greens, um, mustard greens, melons, cotton, millet, and in fact, rice, which is, which is detailed by Judith Carley in uh, Black Rice and in the Shadow of Slavery the transatlantic migration of African fruit crops, she goes into detail of this uh, transmission of agrarian knowledge. And so anyways, you have, you have that on one hand, which is then subverted by the very exploitative reality of Southern plantation farm life. And what develops is something called the, the Black Belt South, which basically was the centers, the counties in every state where the majority of the population was black. And also, too, the soil actually have to be black. Some people say that's why it was called the Black Belt in the first place. But then the census came and, well, and the numbers showed that the majority of people there were black. You know, so it's like, okay, well, what are you really trying to say? And so, you, so we have the development of the Black Belt South, which is really pivotal even to this day, even to this day. Um, but also in those counties was also the very large, um, I keep thinking in Spanish, I want to say latifundo, but plantations. And it's important that we, we take, we pause on this just for a split second because um, the development of the plantation was the instrument that allowed monoculture to happen. And so when we look today and we look at monoculture, well, it's supported by farms who are, whether they're leasing or they're owning, hundreds if not thousands of acres. Well, this is what was happening in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, mm-hmm. nothing has changed in terms of that particular structure. So that's, okay. that's one piece to put onto the dashboard. Um, but in this Black Belt South, which became pivotal at the time of, uh, of Reconstruction, which was the 10-year period after the Civil War, and it's also important to, to um, I guess, remove another layer of amnesia, that it was not a civil war. There's nothing civil about the war. And in fact, the war was not even fought over slavery. It was fought over which economic system was going to control the West, period, the end. There were other complex factors that went into it, but really it was about which economic system was going to control the West because the South needed more land to maintain its economic system, and the North needed unfettered access to the raw materials that was being produced by the South. And that, in fact, actually the North had more farms than the South did. You know, people will paint that the North didn't have any farms and the South was under-industrialized. But in fact, actually, during the time of the Civil War, the South, well, prior to the Civil War, the South was developing many, many, many industries. Um, so, you know, there was nothing civil about the war. It really wasn't about slavery. It was about land and the exp- expansion of a particular form of capitalism, whether it was going to be the Southern variant, which is based upon agriculture and land, or the northern variant, which is based upon the industrialization and the transformation of the raw materials. This period, the reconstruction that happened for this 10-year period, um, Du Bois writes it as the destruction of reconstruction because many, many things happened at that moment. Um, But one of the principal pieces was to really to get at this question in the South was around what are you going to do with three things? One the land base of these plantations, to the masses of black folks, whom the majority of whom had only known slavery at this point, and to a southern white poor 
whom had been marginalized from the labor sector because of slavery. There were a lot of different things that happened, whether it was development of industry, um, advertisements that come up north. But the, one of the principal things for me here was around uh, land redistribution. And actually, if you look at the history, this is the, one of the first times, at least up until that point, land redistribution was a concept that was actually debated in, in Congress. And I actually think this was really the only clear moment for actual agrarian reform in our society was this 10-year period. And so there was a couple of things that were, there were several different programs that were developed, you know, whether it's the, the Freedmen and Refugees Bureau, uh, which basically was a immense contradiction because on one hand it was designed to resettle, quote unquote, the um, recently freed, quote unquote, black folks and the masses of Southern poor onto land. But then on the other hand, it was built upon dispossessing more indigenous people's lands and then shipping them out west, i.e. the Trail of Tears um, and things of that nature. And so that particular bureau and that program of resettlement um, was completely busted. I think, you know, depending upon who you read, they say that only anywhere from three upwards of 6% of the eligible persons um, actually got resettled, which still accounted to thousands of acres that um, were taken on one hand from indigenous people and then, then given to other folks who were who, who rightfully deserved something after hundreds of years of free slavery and being completely repressed by their social the social system around them that they were building. So, you know, that was, that was a context. But there was something that was very unique that actually never left the Senate. And it was this program called confiscation. And what was unique about confiscation was that it basically said, we're going to take all the land in the plantation so let's say there's a thousand acres in this plantation. Well, if there were 100 workers, whether they be formerly enslaved persons or whites, that land then would get divided by that number of people. So a thousand acres, a hundred people, each person gets 10 acres. Again, it's always about power. Land plus labor equals power in this situation. If you do the numbers, going back to this black belt, if all of a sudden the majority of the people in a county are black, and now they also owe land, which, by the way, was the only way you could vote, well, now we have a black majority in the economic centers in every state in the South. Right. And this could just not happen. Because at that, what I actually think hasn't ever changed, but what was clear at that time, the white, the white power structure was concerned with one thing and one thing only making sure that black folks ain't have shit. And what that means was that they would do anything at length to destroy the South to make sure that black people wouldn't have anything. And the irony was that the black struggle, when it was able to develop in different forms, was always about the development of all peoples. Although it was very clear about the certain development of black folks, it was also very, very clear that through the development of black people, everyone benefits. Everyone benefits. And so this confiscation didn't, didn't pass the House. I mean, it didn't even get out of the Senate. It didn't get out of the Senate for a couple of reasons. One, the Southern oligarchy. I mean, when they caught wind of this, it was a wrap. Because at that time, right after Reconstruction, you know, I can't give you accurate numbers here, but there was a very large increase, obviously, of blacks inside House, I mean, state legislatures of different roles, whether 
aides all the way up to Congress people, right? And this was very pivotal because now for the first time in history, blacks were able to get into the political system and at least on some level enact a little bit of their interests to advance their own agency, you know, albeit very difficult. But then the second piece that, was, that happened was called the Haynes-Tilden Compact or Compromise of 1877, which basically was the, the, the nail on the coffin for Reconstruction. I mean, at this point, Reconstruction was already starting to sputter out. Funding was becoming an issue. The developments that were suggested in the package of Reconstruction, which was you know, it, the Freemansboro was one thing that is talked about, but I mean, they had things for, for electricity, for telephone, for postal services, for transportation, for the development of infrastructure. I mean, across the board, a completely redevelopment of the South. Um, but this Haynes-Tilden Compromise or Compact, it came about basically at a moment when the Southern oligarchy, whom were the the first losers, not the real losers, but the first losers in the Civil War. Because basically the Civil War meant for them that they weren't going to make as much money as they thought they could, but they knew they were still going to make some money. This, this Haynes-Tilling Compact basically was, because at that time, you know, there was a runoff in the presidential election. Basically, the Southern oligarchy met with the plutocrats of the North. And basically, they, the South said, look, you can have your candidate, but under one condition, you leave us alone. You have no say in our social order. We can make trade, we can make business, do all those things, but when it comes to our social order, the North ain't got nothing to say about it. And so what this basically did was enshrined de facto and de sure segregation, right? This was like when you saw the spawn of the KKK, many, many groups that, and militias, which is also depicted in... Um, we Will Shoot Back, uh, which is a tale of uh, civil rights insurgency uh, in Mississippi in the South. A recent book, it came out, I believe, several, several years ago. Hmm. Um, goes in a little bit, a little bit uh, detail about this particular moment as well and its effects, you know, moving forward to the civil rights movement. And so anyways, you know, that was the destruction of Reconstruction, the institutionalization and normalization and acceptance on a national level of the institution of racism, of segregation, of white supremacy. Um, and then also, too, it, it basically, it, it, in my opinion, it made the state nothing more than a vehicle to allow commerce to take place. You know, it's only one, you know, common language might say, it's only once black folks uh, got into the political system, you know, people had to think about civil rights. Before then, we didn't have to think about civil rights. You know, and so... Um, the state really was just a mechanism to allow the free flow of commerce inside inside national boundaries. It had no it had no interest, you know, the folks they had no interest to have a state that had anything to do with social because that meant that it'd go after their profits. And what we know about capitalism and those who who quote unquote win, anything that gets in the way of capital's got to go. Moving, you know, into the early twentieth century into the nineteen hundreds. Blacks were very successful in many different ways, given those circumstances, right? We're able to develop a land base upwards up of 16, 18 million acres by 1920, over 120 black-owned banks, um, development of, quote-unquote, the Black Wall Street in different economic centers throughout the South. Um, and all that was leading towards the 1920s. There was roughly over 800,000 black farmers, um, landowners, things of that nature. 
leading up to the early 19, 1920s. And that, you know, everyone got hit by the, by the, the Great Depression, which, which, by the way, the Great Depression was, uh, was, a, a, uh, was the precursor to the Great Depression, which was the Dust Bowl. And the reason I want to tie in the Dust Bowl here is because, again, when we talk about this industrial model of agriculture, it is entrenched in every segment of the development of this society. In every which way we can think about it, we can tie it back to this industrial model of agriculture. And the Dust Bowl, which was created basically by the spike in the prices of corn and cotton. Well, cotton was kind of drop off at that point, but corn and cereal grains. And so farmers literally were taking down forests and plowing up the prairie in the Midwest. Well... What was the precursor to that, again, were these resettlement programs that came after Reconstruction that displaced indigenous peoples across the board. So everywhere we look, when there was the displacement of indigenous peoples and then the industrial model of agriculture, which was the model of development for land and resources, came into place, we saw exploitation of land, i.e. the Dust Bowl, and then the continued exploitation of labor, whether it was poor whites or poor blacks, or really poor people of color um, across the board. Moving into the 1920s and going on forward, we begin to see the decline of everybody in agriculture, not just black folks. Everybody in agriculture starts to drop off. That's fueled by the cotton crisis, the corn crisis. I mean, every crop had a crisis. I mean, it's a continual crisis. It's, it's, it's agriculture and capitalism is based upon continual crises. You know, I'm just, I'm speaking specifically to the black experience. You know, there's a lot of other things that are happening at this time, you know, there's the populist movement, which is spawned by farmers. There's the development of different farmer unions throughout the South. Um, but I'm just, you know, taking one particular broad stroke segment of it. So we have the steady decline from 1920 uh, into the 1950s, really around World War II, where World War II, we began to see a more of a accelerated loss of black land and black farmers. And it's for, it's, it's for a variety of reasons. Obviously, the war has... A lot to do with it. Um, but there are other, other threads too, which were these tax sales, which basically how land is structured, if you own land, well, you never actually own anything in this country. But uh, if you own land, own title to land, you have to pay taxes. And well, what typically what happened in the South, if you miss taxes, miss paying your taxes for a term, each county has had these registries. And typically what white folks would come and do which still happens today. I mean, the calls that uh, colleagues like the Black Belt Justice Center, and even when I was with the Rural Coalition, uh, the calls we would get are just, you would scratch your head and wonder, how is this still happening in 2010, let alone 2016? But you get folks who would watch these registers and if see that someone is delinquent for a term, they'd come in and they would pay the taxes on the term. And if you do that, you automatically get title to the land. And so a lot of land, black land, got usurped by it, you know. And then you also had air property, which meant that, let's say I own 100 acres and then I had 10 children and each child had two kids. Well, that now title that possibly was in my name or my partner's name is divided by my children and their children. So all of a sudden, 100 acres for two people became an acre for 100 people. And it just gets muddled like that. 
and then people can come in and, and purchase the the rights to the land and buy out other partners and so uh, a lot of conniving development happened that way too which was also part of the loss of black owned land and then thirdly was the usda itself the usda you know it took them a long time to acknowledge that there was a um, discrimination in their agency well you know you know, that's all I'm going to say. It just took them a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, I mean, you, you were talking about bringing this up to today, and I, th- I think with uh, with just a few minutes left, I'm I'm wondering if uh, you might be able to break down for foodies why it is, uh, j- just to sort of cap that answer, um, that Black Lives Matter is a movement that matters for food. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Again, going back to who's going to feed the future and how and on what terms, because... We, I mean, we, we have to ask ourselves, we have, we have to ask ourselves that question. It's a very, it's a very pragmatic question because currently nobody in this country feeds this country. We, we purchase food from anywhere else all over the world. And that's just on the food, the food piece. But this question around food in relation to race, in relation to Black Lives Matter, you know, the, the current movement and the meme in particular, I think it's a tough pill to swallow because, yeah, it's, it's one thing to have more people of color owning land. And then again, it's another thing to understand why that's important in relation to the history of the development of agriculture in this society. Because if anyone has interest in transforming the way either A, relate we relate to each other in the society. B, transforming the, the environmental concerns or the environmental context that, is, uh, that we are faced by this industrial model, model, industrial model of agriculture in this society. Or two, wants healthy food, which I think is actually the more important question. Um, we then have to talk about power in the food system. And to talk about power in the food system, you have to talk about race. And to talk about race, you have to talk about black folks, you have to talk about indigenous folks, people of color, poor whites. But it's led by the experiences of black farmers and indigenous people and people of color who have historically always been on the front line, but have historically always been marginalized from any form of conversation, whether it's in the policy arena or outside the policy arena in the development of of community-based organizations and efforts that are truly, truly looking to develop a food system that works for people and the planet. And so, you know, in this recent article that uh, we put out with Why Hunger, titled People's Agroecology, in there, you know, I basically say that there is no agriculture, there's no agroecology and no food sovereignty without people of color, period, the end. It's not possible. If we... If, if, if we're not included, then it's just food security and organic. And we can, we can clap our hands on the way to a future that we all know is going to be something we don't want. And so it's a question, too, about, about democracy and really challenging our assumptions about what an economic order, economic reality can be, and challenging us to understand how can we get there. You know, absolutely black lives matter. Absolutely black land matters. And I think, you know, lastly, for a broader conversation to accept those very assumptions, one, well, would be amazing. And two, 
would be just the first starting point for us really to understand how to transform this society, how to have this place that's something hospitable for people in the future. Because at this rate, it's not going to be the case. You know, just listening to you talk, I really, um, what you're doing as a peasant, even just for identifying yourself as a peasant, is kind of allowing for this reimagination of how we understand relationships to the land and to each other. And also, you know, the work that you're doing is combating the whole system of gaining power through industrialization and through money as opposed to gaining equality through um, resources and and feeding yourself and development of resources. Sometimes you feel like, you know what, Um, I want to go to the moon instead of deal with this stuff because there's so much here that you're addressing that really needs to be changed. Do you find combating all of the mythology and also, you know, the the actuality, the logistics of the situation daunting or do you find that a, a challenge that you're you're ready to embrace? It's funny, I was just I was just lamenting to my my partner, telling her that uh, you know, sometimes Aaliyah, I just wanna wash dishes. <laughs> when I'm washing the dishes, there's nothing unknown. Water's gonna come out of this faucet, it's gonna go down that drain, here's the soap, here's a rag, go to work. You know, there's no there's no illusion, you know. Um I mean, well, one could also say that, you know, there's the illusion of running water, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, there, there are certainly uh, moments that I'm very happy having my hands in the dirt. You know, I get to experience Mother, mother Nature. It's very humbling, um, humbling exponentially. <laughs> um, and wonderful. I mean, you get you know, you get to see the, the majesty that we have been bestowed by having a place in the cosmos on this land, on this place called Earth. Um, and then at the same time, I'm invigorated my comrades and colleagues within La Via Campesina and locally within our collective and within the other networks we're a part of, um, find opportunity and challenge, right? Uh, in challenges, and and it's it's really uh, it's really uh, uh, an incredible moment, right? As like Rosalinda Guillen said in this interview I had with her, you know, our food system is a is in a moment of great peril for harming the planet and people, and at the same time, it's a tremendous moment to organize. The moment, like the social conditions that we're in, is is, in some ways, ironically, very op- It's very op- an op- very opportune moment. Because we have the social trajectory of society, the ecological trajectory of the model of agriculture, um, which is producing a situation in dominant society, and even on the and the, and particularly on, and especially on the margins, where people have to talk about food in relation to some form of our social structure. You know, you get further to the margins, you're going to get more of the real story, right? But closer to the center, um, at least there is a discourse around food. You know, something's better than nothing in that case. And for us on the left, that allows 
us the opportunity to, to seize the moment, to create the space, the political space for already existing leaders to emerge, right? And so sometimes I just want to wash dishes. Then the other part of the time, yeah, I just want to be planting and harvesting and eating from the field. And then the other part of the time, it's time to organize. Um, and so that's, that, that's where I'm at right now. So Blaine, I can't let you go without asking you about your farm. Can you tell us about it, what you grow, who you grow it for, how much land you have, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so we uh, were uh, landless. We lease, we're tenant farmers. Um, we, our farm is called Black Dirt Farm. Uh, it's actually on the ancestral lands of Harriet Tubman, uh, wow. which basically means it's uh, on the northernmost track of where she freed herself, freed her mother and father, and then freed um, nine other people. Actually, right along the road, the, the farm sits on on Poplar Neck. We're, we're quite small, um, about two, two and a half acres, about a hectare of uh, diversified vegetable production, um, ecological production. We're really like a southern farm, even though we're still quite, uh, we're in the north-south, so there's a lot of things like sweet potatoes and collard greens and kale and okra and lots of watermelons and things of that nature. Um, and then we have a larger entity called the, and it's principally my partner and I, Aaliyah, and other family members actually who help out on the farm. And then we have a larger uh, social body called the Black Dirt Farm Collective, which is responsible for a variety of trainings that we do throughout the year. So we do three to f- two to four day uh, camps on agroecology, on seed keeping. We don't call it seed saving, we call it seed keeping on uh, political formation within agroecology, on community organizing, on forestry, on a, on a variety of things. You know, our pedagogical framework is based upon uh, political and cultural formation, um, technical, agroecological, um, technical development, and capacity building. And capacity building being like facilitation techniques or meditation or art, you know. So those are the three frames for our, our pedagogical work. And so that's a bit about the farm. You know, it's a part of a larger farm, a uh, 147-acre track of forest and open land. Um, and so that's just a, a little bit of, of what it looks like on the, on the ground. Where can people uh, find out more about the work that you're doing and um, l- learn more about things that we've barely had a t- chance to touch on, things like food sovereignty and agroecology? Where, where, where should they look? Uh, well... I mean, you know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but the Blaine version. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, well, you know, food sovereignty, agroecology, certainly La Via Campesina. You know, the La Via Campesina will just turn, anyone who hasn't come across their literature will turn them out in a way and, uh, you know, bring them to the ground. Uh, there's some stuff that's been produced with Why Hunger, uh, a recent publication on um, agroecology, putting food sovereignty into action um, with peasant leaders from around the world mentioned in there. Uh, we're doing a series called People's Agroecology or Agroecologia Popular on uh, Via Why Hunger's uh, blog site as well. Actually, the first article is out. And then for us here on the farm, uh, we're very, we're very, very low key. Very, very low-key. Um, we often say people have to get in touch with us by phone or by email. We actually don't have any web web presence at all. And that's a, that's a little bit, uh, honestly, by design. We're the only um, 
or small scale ecological farm in our county. And uh, we're just a little concerned about some of our political views being easily accessible, you know, for folks to know where oh, we wow. are. Because our town actually is the capital of the, uh, the KKK in our county. So, you know, we have to be a little precarious about how we show up in, in some of the local areas. But people can get in contact with us via email, blackdirtfarmer at gmail.com. We do have a social media presence uh, online, uh, whether it's Twitter or Facebook. Um, and you can just search Black Dirt Farm and it'll pop up. And so that's the, the, the most direct ways of, of getting in touch with us. You know, we, we journeyed in a different direction, I think, towards the beginning. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much happening in, the, in, in, in this, this track of land in the U.S. as it relates to people on the ground doing the work, right? Yeah. Whether it's in the Southwest, Alma Makitiko, with Surco, in the South, with the Mississippi Association of Cooperatives, cooperatives uh cooperation jackson or the farm workers association of florida mm-hmm. um other groups of la via Campesina throughout the u.s community to community in bellingham washington eco hermanas in maryland uh Soulfire farm in new york um i mean there's just there's a tremendous amount of people on the ground doing the work um and i guess i'll just leave with with this final thing or not leave but end with this final thing is that as a farmer uh, as a as a small farmer we're about feeding people feeding people in harmony with nature um, having a viable production social and economic model ecological model and we're also about organization because we very well understand we can produce all the great food in the world we can have organic we can have sustainable but again if we're not working to transform the very nature of the relations of power in the food system, having good food will be null and void. And so for us, we are about organization and organizing. Thank you so much, Blaine. This has been great. Thank you all. Thank you, Bernie. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. We've been talking to peasant farmer and leader in La Via Campesina, North America, Blaine Snipstall. You can find more about Blaine, agroecology, food sovereignty, and much more on our website. That's thesecretingredient.org. You'll also find an archive of all of our shows there. You've been listening to The Secret Ingredient with Raj Patel, Tom Philpot, and me, Rebecca McEnroy. On our next episode, we'll get back to our regular schedule and talk with anthropologist Arjuna Potterai about food, nationalism, imagination, and so much more. Also, make sure you never miss a show. Subscribe to The Secret Ingredient in iTunes or on SoundCloud and leave us a review while you're there. We'd love to know what you think of the show. The Secret Ingredient is engineered by David Alvarez and produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. Linda Baines Johnson. <laughs> and that, that's my American trying to do a British accent. When real music happens, it really hits you. Sometimes you hear a song and it changes everything. On the KUTX podcast, this song, artists talk about the songs that changed their lives. You can find this song on KUTX.org or wherever you get your podcasts.